Welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast, where powerful women are interviewed every week to share real inspiring stories and incredible insight to help women or anyone break the barriers, be a part of innovation, shatter the glass ceiling, and dominate to the top of their sport, industry, or life's mission. Join us as we celebrate exceptional women and step into our power. And now, here's your host, Angela Gennari. Hello, and welcome to the Pretty Powerful Podcast. My name is Angela Gennari, and today I'm here with Beth McDaniel. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hi, Angela. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So Beth is a really amazing and different kind of guest because she's going to bring so much expertise to to the table today on climate change and just the cool things that she's doing. She's a serial entrepreneur. So I'm going to read you her bio because I am just fascinated with her journey. So Beth McDaniel, JD, is a founder and president of the award-winning paint and coatings company, Reactive Services, where she also serves as legal counsel. She is also a partner in McDaniel & Associates, a law firm specializing in patent and trade secret law. Her legal practice is focused on contracts, business administration, innovation, and entrepreneurship. As a serial entrepreneur, she has guided this bleeding-edge innovation company, operating in the paint and coatings and specialty chemicals industries for the past 15 years. She has served in leadership roles for numerous organizations, including serving as a Pathways to Peace Fellow, a premier justice organization. Her work in the area of human rights and social justice brings a level of experience and intention to ensure that any climate solution has at its heart environmental justice and enhancement of human rights and personal livelihood. She brings the same dedication to her family, including her two children and grandchildren. That's amazing. So I am, gosh, you're, you're doing all the things that I said I wanted to do when I grew up, but I did. And so I love that you're an attorney. I love that you're focused on social justice and climate change and making the world a better place. And then you're also protecting people's rights to to their own information through patents and trade laws. And I mean, I just, there's just so much about this that I'm fascinated with. So welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I want to start by asking what got you um, involved? What, what led you down the path of law? Why did you want to become an attorney? I wish I could say that it was this long held, you know, fantasy of mine as a child to be a lawyer. I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I was the first one. Yeah. Uh, and um, no, I just fell into it as people do. You know, my job was ending. I was in my mid twenties. No, mm -hmm. you know, it's my early twenties, and and I was working after I had gone to college and gotten a finance degree. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought I was going to go into banking or finance or something, which I hated when I <laughs> and, uh, and instead, uh, it, but I, I just took a job like working at a, at a company and kind of business administration. And um, that job was kind of ending and they were selling off the, the, the businesses and the properties. And so I was either going to make a lateral move like into the accounts payable department or something or go ahead and do something else. And, and I thought I could apply to law school, you know, and then I got into one that I had never heard of. I was living in Houston and I got into South Texas College of Law, which is actually a very good private law school, but I wasn't familiar with it. And I had that kind of Groucho Marx reaction, like what kind of college would want me? Yeah. You know, we got a law school <laughs> business that would want me. And so, um, 
and I ended up going and, uh, and it was great. And I, I love being a lawyer. I love having that education. It wasn't even the, really the right, the right, right law school for me. It ends up, it was more of a litigation. They, they produce a lot of litigators and I ended up in, in business law wow. uh, okay. transactional stuff. And that made more sense for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. So, so you're in law school and you decide to go into, you said business. And so you're, you're doing patents and trademarks and it's a really fascinating area because it's really tough. Like it's a, it's a really tough industry, just figuring out all the nuances that, that make somebody's mark unique and that, you know, and then having to follow that through all the way to the USPTO and, and, how how does that process work? Do you find that? Okay, to be- well, I'm going to make a little bit of a correction in that um, assumption because, first of all, it was not linear to go oh. from school to the law firm that I'm practicing in now. Oh. <laughs> but we can uh, talk about that or not. But um, and I'm but just to clear it up, I'm not a patent attorney. Okay. I've done trademarks and stuff like that. To be a patent attorney, you have to have a science background. So it's oh, one of the specializations in law is patent. And it makes sense when you think about it. You know, you would want them to be either an engineer or a scientist if they're making patents for those kind of things. They gotta understand the underlying, you know, discipline of what it is that they're patenting. And so um, yeah, I'm not that. Um, I've done some other IP law and I do practice and help, you know, our company with trade secrets and that kind of thing. Um, my husband is a patent attorney okay. and okay. Yeah, he's a biochemist and a lot of other different kind of sciences. Um, he's very sciencey, I say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he started the patent law firm. I came into this firm. Okay. Very cool. Well, that's neat. Cause I think that you guys are like the dynamic duo then, right? Because you can kind of <laughs> do anything. We support each other. We supplement each other. That's we- awesome. Yeah. I love that. So, so then you, you go and you become an entrepreneur from law, right? So did you, you started law first and then became an entrepreneur? Is that how? I would say entrepreneurship has been in, in me kind of all my life. Cause really? my- kind of yeah my my dad was a chemist also okay. in Houston like ship channel area and um but he always had side businesses we always had businesses uh real estate or a house or something that we were keeping up and renting out and i guess i just kind of always um knew that side of things you know that um and so we were always running some little business on the side some family thing and um whether I liked it or not, it gave me that kind of background. So the entrepreneurial stuff came a little bit easier. And also I never really worked for a lot of big companies or big law firms. That wasn't my, my gig either. You know, I didn't, I didn't dig showing up at a designated time every day and wearing all the right clothes and stuff like that. So entrepreneurship suited me personality wise more, you know, yeah, do my can, thing and do it on my own hours and all of that. So, yeah, I, I can relate to that. I'm, I, I usually say I'm unemployable. Please don't employ me because I'll definitely get fired. I'm not, I'm not the person that you want to have. <laughs> I, well, the only people I always say about our families, only people that would employ us is each other. Yeah. And I work with my family. I, you know, not only yeah. do I my husband and we've started a company, but <clears throat> excuse me, I um, also work with um, my brother and my sister and my parents. I when they oh, were wow, that's yeah, awesome. we, all, we all had businesses together and still do. 
That's awesome. So, so then you move into the environmental sector. Um, so were you always passionate about sustainability? Was this just kind of, did you have a moment where you're like, Hey, I need to make a difference. Did you come across a product? Like how did this work when, when you moved into the, the paint code, uh, the coatings and tell me a little bit about that business. Yeah. So the company that Steve and I have, my husband and I have, is in the paint and coatings innovation space. And I usually have to explain this because I always say paint and coatings is the biggest industry that no one ever thinks about. Right. <laughs> it's true. It's, you know, it's prolific. It's, it's, there are billions and billions of dollars every year because everything is coded in its manufacturing process at some point. Okay. And so wherever you are, look around your room, look at everything. So you, you, of course we know the walls are coated with paint and a paint is the same thing as a coating, but with color. Okay. okay. And is there to protect the underlying surface. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so everything is, is coded. So if I'm looking at you in the back, like that coffee cup, you just lifted up has coding, mm -hmm. your has coding, your computer screen, your eyeglasses, everything around you at some point in its manufacturing process. And to us, that's just surface area that yeah. we have to work with. And um, what our company has done is add a third dimension to, um, to that, and that's functionality. So we want our paints to function, um, uh, to react to their environment in some sort of way that's helpful. Um, for instance, antimicrobial. Now, we're not the first antimicrobial paint. There are other smart coatings out there that have a functionality like that, but ours is the first that uses bio-based materials that are naturally non-toxic in the paint to achieve that kind of functionality that like antimicrobial on a surface for lasting antimicrobial. It's not like spraying Lysol on, which is a disinfectant that works one time. This would be continually working in a coating system to keep a surface free from microbes. Okay. Coronavirus or something like that. Mm. So the basis of what we've been doing for about 20 years. And then um, we got kicked in the head with a steel-toed boot in about 28 in 2018 when the IPCC report came out about um, that's the UN's International Panel on Climate Change. Okay. And their report came out um, about climate change and where we were at that point and what we needed what we needed to do. And it was shocking. And it really, it floored us, especially Steve. I mean, my husband thinks he can solve any problem in the world. And he was like, I don't know how I'm going to protect you from this. You know, wow. And um, so he sat on the couch for about a week and we talked about it a lot. And then he had a, an idea that that he had been considering from some other research that he had done in the Arctic because he had spent, he's also a space enthusiast and <clears throat> wants to find uh, life on Mars. And so mm -hmm. he's done a lot of, like Martian simulations in different places on earth. One of them is the Arctic. And then while he was there one time, way back, he saw something and it just stuck in his mind. And what it was, was as it was rock, it was covered with what he thought was red paint, wasn't paint, it was lichen, but it looked like paint. Huh. And he thought it was like a GPS marker or something like that, but it looked like paint. And he was like, what is that? Well, we've all seen lichen, you know, you go hiking, right. You know, you see it on rocks, you can't pick it off really. I mean, it sticks to the, and mm -hmm. it's powerful, right? You see all different colors. They can grow up next to each other. Well, that's because lichen has, the reason why it has different colors, it has different kinds of algae in it. And I'm getting to a point here. Uh -huh. But uh, And lichen is composed of two um, 
of two organisms, algae that photosynthesize and fungi that support the algae in its photosynthesis. Like for instance, letting it get sunlight, but not too much UV, helping mm. it absorb water that it needs for photosynthesis. And photosynthesis pulls down CO2, as you remember from eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. releases um, oxygen. So Steve looked at that and he thought, you know, that's a lot like a paint. It's got color. It adheres well to the surface. Let's take a look at that. What if we cut into a lichen and see what it looks like? And so we did that. We saw what it looked like. And we designed a paint that pulls down CO2. And if you cut it down in the middle of it, if you could slice it down and look at it in a, through a microscope, what you'd see is very similar to the way that lichen is structured with fungus and algae. We have algae but the paint part that we do is kind of like fungus that supports the algae. Interesting. So CO2. So it's a climate change solution. It's a carbon removed carbon dioxide removal technology. Wow. So what can you put this on? Can you put this on anything or is it like a paint? How, how does this actually adhere? So, okay. Yeah. Great question. Um, What it is, is it's, it's not the typical paint that you would think about. It's completely non-toxic. In fact, it's made of ingredients that you can eat. Okay. Oh, wow. In, in your biscuit today. Okay. They are things that like absorb water mm-hmm. and give moisture, uh, make your biscuits taste real moist. Well, anyway, um, that's what we use to make this paint. So it's not a typical paint that you would see on your walls. Although we, we are planning to develop that as well, okay. but This is a paint that would be put into a module and we put these into a terrarium license um, situation so we can control the environment and we can put as much painted surface area in a module to do the work of photosynthesis as possible. So we can take Mm. advantage of the fact that you can hang sheets vertically because paint adheres well, right? And so go vertical, we can stack up modules Anyway, we can get a lot more done in a footprint than a tree could, for instance. Mm-hmm. We can measure it molecule by molecule as well. So I could get into a lot of the science, but basically what we're what we're um, proposing, the highest and best use for this right now is a paint that would be in a module that we could densify as much as possible to do as much of the photosynthetic work as possible because the problem is so huge and it's mm-hmm. so urgent that yeah. it's not as good as painting on the surface of your, of your house, but that will come too. That's mm-hmm. just Okay. Wow. Well, that's amazing that you guys have developed this technology. I think that that's outstanding. I mean, we, we need more solutions, you know, to combat climate change. And, you know, we were just uh, for the show, just mentioning the the fires in Maui that are happening and, you know, the, the droughts that we're dealing with and, and there's just so much going on and we, we need to start problem solving. Um, We've, we've let it go for way too long. So I yeah, think we're that gonna that's pass outstanding. That we don't want to pass up, like you know, we don't want the Great Barrier Reef to die. Right, exactly. Well, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll do something soon, along with all the other coral reefs. But yeah, I don't want to be, you know, Debbie Downer here. Yeah. Well, so what's being done on the international government space that's making an impact? Do you think? 
Um, well, I mean, there's all sorts of emission control, you know, um, regulations and countries are taking big steps and right. we need them to. Unfortunately, uh, there's, there's two things that need to happen. Emissions need to go down as well as carbon dioxide needs to be pulled from the air. Yeah. Um, and so ours falls more in the pulling from the air side. Okay. We can pull from an industrial slip like point source too. If an industry is emitting CO2, we can pipe that into our modules and capture that CO2. It only makes our system work better. Right. Cause what wow. do yeah. now do you love CO2? Right. Okay? Right. Right. Um, so we can use ours. Our system is adaptable to different situations, but we need both generally, you know, globally, what we need is we need to reduce emissions and we also have to pull down C CO2 or we're not, we're going to pass up those tipping points. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's fascinating. So, so when you started going down this journey, did you have any major obstacles in terms of policies and, and governmental regulations that you had to go around? And if so, how did you do that? We don't have a lot of policies that we have to go around. I mean, the big obstacle for us is always money. Okay. Yeah. No one's paying us to develop this. Okay. Yeah. What we yeah. do in our business is we license technology. We develop technology and we license. Usually it's some paint company coming to us and saying, Hey, we need a paint that does this functionality. Can you develop that for us? We develop it for them and then we license that to them and they manufacture and distribute it. Okay. okay. That's our that's our business model. But sometimes we innovate not knowing if there's going to be a buyer. So mm. we always need money to come in at some point because, you know, we're just carrying climate change on our backs right now. <laughs> so we can use some help. But yeah. uh, no, and we are we're getting help. And there's a lot of experts that are helping us. We're, <clears throat> but there's always. Yeah, we always need money. That's the biggest obstacle. But Given what we're using, utilizing the the, the nature of the ingredients and, and all that, we don't face regulatory with what we're doing. There's really, we, we don't even have to construct anything. Really? And we're not, a lot of these CDR or carbon dioxide removal technologies inject that CD, that CO2, that carbon down into the ground. And that means going down like two miles into the mm. ground. Okay? And that's a huge deal with its own risks. We don't, we don't put our CO2 to bed that way. Okay. Yeah. We have other means of doing that, that don't involve that. I won't get into it because it's just, you know, too detailed, but, um, but we, we avoid that because yeah. that would be a very heavy regulated thing too. And it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So do you find that companies are open to having this discussion? Is it a difficult discussion to have? Is it, is it, where does that, where does that line get drawn with corporations who say, I'm interested in doing well, you know, I want to do good for, for the world, but also profitability, right? So where do you find that those conversations are difficult to have with big corporations or, or governmental entities? Yeah. Um, you know, I, yes, but there, there definitely seems to be a trend of them wanting to do good. One, you know, like we are, we're talking to some of the, uh, in, like in this, in the steel industry, the steel industry is a, um, is an emitter that can't really abate their emissions. Okay. There's no real way to get around it. And so 
um, that's called a hard to abate industry. And so they are, what they're doing is they're turning to carbon dioxide removal and they are very interested, you know, in doing something to help. Now they're very interested, you know, I'm not just talking about the steel industry, Gen, you know, generally companies, uh, corporations are interested in doing something so long as it doesn't cost them too much money. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> Which when you're talking about existential things, you're like, okay, um, we're talking about our existence here. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And um, so um, we have been hit usually when we talk about this with, um, in fact, like what we were talking to one of the biggest um, computer companies in the world. If you guessed it, I mean, if I gave you one guess, you'd probably guess it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, their sustainability officer, and they had, only one question for us. And that was, um, what's the ROI? Wow. And, um, it was a little offensive. Yeah. Like what is a life cost? I don't know. Like I, (laughs) what is it? Someone's got a gun to your head and you're like, Oh, it's going to be $300 for you to pull the gun off. No, I'm not worth that. Yeah. Um, But, um, and the answer is is great. Okay, our ROI, our business model for this technology is very good. So we had a good answer for the ROI, but it's just a little offensive that that's always the first thing. Right, right. For somebody whose whose main job is supposed to be doing right for for sustainability, right? Doing doing well for affecting climate change and and you know impacting our environment. So that's disappointing, but I get it. Yeah. So. Um, you know, and it's a shame because I feel the same thing happens with DEI. You know, DEI, everybody has this great initiative. We want women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses, and we're going to make it a real priority. But the fact is, sometimes it costs more money to do business with a small business or a woman-owned business or a minority-owned business because we're not a giant billion-dollar corporation who, you know, has has their overhead is very different. You know, they're, they're, it doesn't we're not we're not able to get the cost savings that they are. So, you know, when when we bring our proposal to the table, even if we're talking to somebody who's in charge of DEI for a corporation like, oh, wow, yeah, you're more much more expensive. And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of that same thing of like, do you really want to impact or is this just are you just saying it? You know, are you just checking a box? And yeah. So yeah, sustainability, DEI, you know, all of these initiatives that corporations do, they want to put a person in the role, but they won't, they don't want to put money behind that. They don't want to put money where their mouth is. So it's a, it's a shame. It's a shame. So, so how can we do better as individuals? What do we, what can we as individuals do better to, to impact climate change and to minimize our carbon footprint? Well, I think what we do is you keep on doing what you're doing, you know, I mean, you know, people recycle and they get solar panels and they drive electric cars if possible. And all of that is good. Okay. Unfortunately, none of it is going to get us there. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to also think bigger. I mean, you don't want to take away from that. You want to keep that up because you don't want the problem to get even bigger, but um, we have to take big steps and just the numbers work out that way. And um, one of those is that we need more carbon removal. So I will plug this generally. And I, I'm not, I mean, I consider other competitors in our field as colleagues, because we're all yeah. after the same thing. And there is plenty 
of CO2 to go around. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, but just the fact, like I said, there's, there's the emissions, there's reducing emissions, but then there's also, we, we have to add in this piece because even if we were to reach those emissions goals, which we won't at all, they're going mm. the wrong way, the trajectory is the wrong way. But even if we were, then uh, we still need carbon dioxide removal according mm-hmm. to the numbers. Okay. And what we need is to be pulling down. Um, I mean, the numbers vary, but I think the IPCC said by 2030, we need to be pulling down like 6 billion tons or something like that a wow. year. Wow. And I'll tell you where we are right now today is of all the technologies that are direct air capture, um, pulling down CO2 and not emitting more CO2 than they're pulling down. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's a big thing. Right. Right. Um, that we're only at 4,000. Wow. And we need to get to 6 billion in just a few. Wow. So what I would suggest to those who are interested is pick up the phone and call your lawmaker and tell them we need more carbon dioxide removal technologies. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, support that. That's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's going, you're right. I mean, we're so far from that benchmark so far. Wow. And we will eventually have also these modules that I mentioned to you. Um, we th- Because they're modular, these are one meter cube modules that we're building these things in right now. And within them, they have more, you know, painted surface area than, than one meter squared on the ground. But um, eventually we'll have the individual modules that you could have at home. You could be pulling down your own CO2. Wow. So we don't have that on the market yet, but we're we're going towards that. So we are hoping that everyone will be able to pull, you know, pull some of their own weight. So how do you scale? How do you scale what you're doing right now? I know financially, but like what's hype, like how do you make what you're doing um, pivotal and, and, and impactful in a way that is going to meet our needs? And, and how do you scale to that great? uh, I mean, that's massive. Well, one thing we're doing is um, we entered our technology into the XPRIZE carbon removal um, technology uh, contest. Are you yeah. familiar with XPRIZE? I'm not, no. Yeah. So XPRIZES, there's a lot of XPRIZES. Um, XPRIZES are given for or to stimulate technology in a certain field that involves like solving some sort of existential problem, poverty. Okay water, you know, uh, food scarcity, just things like that. And there's a carbon removal um, X prize. It was sponsored by Elon Musk. I think he did it in 2020. The prize is to be um, given away in 2025 on Earth Day to the best technology given. You have to pull down a thousand tons of CO2 and all this stuff. It's a hundred million dollar prize purse. Wow. Biggest prize ever given. And um, so we are, that's one thing we're trying to do to get our technology out there. And it's, and in doing, in meeting the the requirements for the X prize to, to win the X prize, that would show, that really showcases the technology. So it's, right. it's not the tail wagging the dog. I mean, we were, we're in it, but if we can show, we can pull down a thousand tons that's that's what we need to do to scale. Someone needs yeah. to come and amplify what we've done. I mean, we invented the paint and the paint right. can be in a lot of different ways. It's kind of a, 
Swiss Army knife, if you will call it. You know, it can be used, um, like I said, in a for industrial emissions to pull those down. It can be used in direct air. We have an ocean embodiment that would actually put oxygen into the ocean. And there's there's different ways. I mean, we got the paint. We can use it in a lot of ways. Putting these things in your home, developing an architectural coating. It, we got the paint. But we got to we definitely, like you said, need the money. But we're building a pilot plant as well right now in Tracy, California. Okay. And coming out of the lab and putting it in a plant. And that will that will demonstrate it both for the X Prize as well as for the um, just business in general will demonstrate the direct air capture capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So. I want to pivot short, uh, kind of briefly to talk about being a woman in this type of tech, in this type of industry. I mean, it's, I imagine it's fairly rare um, to have a woman in this scientific, um, you know, kind of uh, environmental uh, sustainability. What is that like? Do you find it to be challenging? Do you find it to be easier? Are people willing to listen? I mean, tell me what that's like being a female executive in this industry. Well, as an executive, yeah, that might be a little bit more rare. We have more female scientists, I think, in our labs than um, than males. So I think, you yeah. know, sciences are definitely, and, and I'm not a scientist, so it's hard for me to speak to that, but we definitely see a lot of female presence in the lab. Our chief scientific officer is, is a female too. And, um, but yeah, as president, people are like, oh, her? She's president? Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, I did kind of just marry the inventor. Well, (laughs) there will be better presidents than me, okay, that come to the that will, and I'll move over into probably the social justice space is where I'll probably land and I'll always be a director of the company. But, um, yeah, I mean, do people, I think that. It, it, it hasn't been as hard being a woman as it has been kind of working with my husband. That's been an obstacle. Yeah. I know you were trying to get into the women's space, but as a, as a couple, whenever we go to meetings, we just look like mom, and pa kettle, you know, <laughs> it makes us look automatically kind of small. So that has been a, a little bit of an obstacle, but um, uh, I wish I could speak more to that. I mean, I, I think I haven't felt, that much difference being a woman, but good, good. Well, that's great. I think that's I'm often, I'm often the only woman in the room. Yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. I'm used to that. I did land development for a long time too. And that was the same thing. And I guess I just got used to it. Yeah. I, I understand that. I know I'm, I'm typically the only woman in the room for the security. Oh, I'm, I own a security company. And so similar, but you know, it doesn't phase me. It doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm okay with it. Like I wish there were more women, but I'm not uncomfortable being the only woman in the room because I've learned the, that that's just the way it's going to be. And I either need to get comfortable with it or I need to change industries and I'm not changing industries. Yeah. I'm not get comfortable with it. So you run me off of anything, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, definitely used it to my advantage in ways I love to be underestimated. I love it when yeah. people think that I'm stupid or not on, you know, because yeah. that's the easiest way to just, you know, sneak in on a collateral tag. Yeah, but <laughs> exactly. I definitely think I've been underestimated. Mm-hmm. 
So what it um, with with girls who are coming up through sciences and who who have a passion for this, what advice would you give them in terms of like, you know, how do you how do you go into a career in climate change and sustainability? Well, call me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. And generally do that, you know, I mean, in my life, I, I don't know if I can speak to how you get a job in this area um, besides that, but. I guess when I was, you know, in my life and I've lived for a long time. So a lot of the stuff is starting to come together for me now, but right. I'm passionate about something. I found a way to get involved. Um, that's how I got involved in human rights is I just, you know, I found out that there was still genocide happening in the world. And I was like, no way, not on my watch, you know, mm. I, I got to do something about this. And I just found a way, found some organizations that were doing what, you know, I, could see being a part of. And, um, and so I would say, do that. If you can't, you might try to get a job in, in that field, but if you can't, or if that doesn't suit your schedule or whatever, or your, or your skill set, go find a job. I mean, go volunteer, you know, take yeah. an active role in something, and then you might find it through there also, you know, I mean, a lot of my stuff as I've gotten older, has kind of just come together. The human rights stuff is coming together with the climate change stuff, because frankly, with the climate change um, problem that we're expecting, if we stay on the trajectory that we're on, there's going to be a lot of migration, a lot of unrest. There's going to be a lot more um, viruses, for instance. I mean, we're, we're, we have no idea really what the impacts are going to be, but there's going to be human rights implicated. And so I never knew that my job and my, you know, um, affectation would come together in that way, but they did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if you're passionate about something, you know, do it for free. And that's what I always say. You know, I love that you said volunteer and get involved because if if you love something so much, go do it for free until it turns paid, right? Because if, if you're doing it for free, that's showing your passion. It's putting you in front of the right people. It's giving you the right experience. And, you know, I can't say this enough that some of those paid things or some of the, the free things that you're doing, the volunteer work, the that shows your commitment to a cause, right? And an employer, that speaks volumes. Yeah. And not only that, even if you, even it it can also give meaning to what you're doing. If you can't at that moment, go get your dream job, then it kind of gives meaning to your life. And it really is all one big package anyway, your work and your life and and Mm -hmm. all that. And so if you just kind of add it in your passion, wherever you add it in, just do it. Mm -hmm. uh, It could make your work life and your family life more um, better, not more better. Well, and that, and I think that's where also things click, right? So if you're out um, cleaning up the beaches, for example, and finding cl- plastic in the ocean and getting the nets out of the ocean, I mean, there's so many opportunities to go and help. Um, you might come up with that one solution, you know, like your husband did. You know, he came up with that one thing, like, how do we how do we do better? How do we how do we make an impact? And he he figured it out because, you know, the, the need is great. And when you're involved with it and when you are actively finding solutions, that's when your brain starts to click in and say, OK, we're going to figure this out. This is a problem. We're going to we're natural problem solvers. We're going to try to figure this out. 
And figure it out in a way that suits you as a person, you know, like when I went to the humans, human rights space, I mean, I got involved with an organization where, I mean, these are the most amazing people. And I was, I was very intimidated by a lot of people that were going across the globe, living in refugee camps with these people, training them to do different things, really helping on the ground. They were nurses, they were, and I didn't, I had young kids. I was a lawyer. I'm rooted. I'm not a, I'm not a travel to other side of the world kind of person. Person anyway. And, um, or I am the, the travel person. I'm just not the go live person. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, I thought, you know what, I need to figure out what a housewife working mom can do to support this cause. And I was a lawyer. And so what I decided was, well, first of all, I think I need to build awareness for the, for the cause in my community. So yeah. I started presenting to classrooms and I started organizing classrooms to do different like really fun art projects and stuff like that citywide and um and then um I started uh and I taught advocacy because I'm a lawyer and so I taught them how to stand up and tell their lawmakers what they want it was my stick it to the man class yeah (laughs) teaching high schoolers and going into lawmakers offices and stuff like that and so I figured out what I could do is my point, you know, yeah. parameters and, and there's something you can do given your parameters and your, t- and your skill set and, you know, uh, your expertise. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. We all have special talents. We all have special talents, different types of availability skill sets. I mean, I, I love that because there's so much that can be done. We don't have to do what everybody else is doing, right? Like that's, that's not going to work. We don't need everybody doing the exact same thing. We need everybody using their own special skills and talents and availability to do what you can do. That's exactly right. That's how I felt. Mm-hmm. So to Coke, um, so tell me, you know, part of this podcast, we talk about giving your power away. And um, I know you you seem like a really uh, powerful, charismatic person. So I know that this is probably rare for you, but I think that as women, we do this frequently. Have you ever given your power away in a certain situation and then had to take that power back in a different situation? Like, you know, you've sat in a board meeting and let somebody, you know, kind of talk over you and take credit for something, or you've, you've, you've allowed somebody else to take that power away from you. And then you've had to step back into your power. Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a natural, we will, we'll, we'll, we'll We'll pull back versus, you know, fight for it sometimes. But I yeah, think I just uh, try to learn from it every time, you know, I mean, I, um, I used to work for my brother and he had, uh, or I was kind of a general counsel for him and, um, and, and we work great together and I adore him. He's, he's a, he's like my husband. He's just entrepreneurial and innovator. And I just kind of followed along and tried to keep him honest on everything and, you know, sweep yeah. up where he needed me to, but just keep that mind going where it was going. Cause he's so brilliant in that way. Um, but, you know, I mean, he, if he said something harsh or whatever, it might really like, it would, t- it would sap me of power. I mean, I never thought of it like that, but yeah, it would sap me of power for, you know, and I remember there were moments when he called me down, you know, or maybe in front of other people or whatever. And it just sat me at my, sapped me in my power for months or for in a, in a certain area for even ever, you know? And so, yeah, you got to pull that back and say, even if you were, even if they were right about you, you know, I mean, sometimes yeah. you, 
you just got to be like, okay, well, I won't screw that up again. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I understand. So who inspires you? Wow. Um, Gosh, so many people. Um, My husband is an inspiration to me. I mean, he is probably one of the most brilliant minds in biotech today and innovation, especially. So he's always innovating. Mm -hmm. I, if where I am really in the present and maybe he's not as much, he is a forward thinker. And so that kind of helps us in business is he's always thinking about where are we going with this and big picture items and not afraid to the world and the biggest problems there are. Um, So he inspires me all the time. And, um, but I mean, I had good people around me, you know, um, business wise, I had great people. My dad was a a great businessman, man of very few words and just super wise and super kind. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then there are, you know, because I'm so attached to the human rights space and that's so important to me, there are certain leaders in that space that really, um, that really made an impact on, on me that did just amazing things. Like, uh, one of them was that I, I used to be a fellow in a fellowship called the Carl Wilkins fellow. Okay. Fellowship. And Carl Wilkins, um, was the last remaining American in Rwanda during the genocide in Rwanda in the 1990s. Wow. And he and his family had been living there. He's just kind of regular guy like you know you you would he would be your friend you know I mean you would just know this guy right and um he sent his family away and he was like the hotel Rwanda guy in fact I think he knew him and they he rescued whole orphanages he rescued neighbors and families and all sorts of things and he did it in just the most humble of ways and he utilized what he had because as a white man in Rwanda at that time they he could go talk to um lawmakers and stuff like that he was a negotiator yeah and he stayed there and put his life at risk knowing that though that he could bring you know hopefully really negotiate with some of these people that were carrying out these acts and he did and so yeah he was a big inspiration to me yeah for sure wow so with all that you've done and all that you've accomplished, I mean, you've done so much in your adult life. Did you foresee that this was going to be your path at 18? And what advice would you give to your 18 year old self? I mean, you, you've accomplished so much. Gosh, I was a hot mess at 18. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, mean, I think I we all are. <laughs> I was just stupid. Um, and no, I never would have really thought that I'd have done anything like this. I wasn't even contemplating law school. I, I thought that I would be in business, but, and I was always involved with people. Okay. Yeah. I always like mentored and did big brothers and big sisters and mentored young kids and stuff like that. So I, I kept in touch with that side of myself because it was just important to me to be living that at all points in my life at what, to a certain degree. And then, um, but yeah, at that time I was just partying. Yeah. (laughs) So what advice would you give to 18 year old you? Ooh. Um, okay. Calm down. You don't have to get all the partying in. Um, and, um, live your passion, um, find your skills and, and, try to uh, exploit 
those skills. But if you don't have any skills, because I was like that, I had general intelligence yeah. probably, but not really any great skill set. I worked at a grocery store, you know, in, co- in high school and I waited tables in college. And um, I'm not saying those aren't careers. Those are fine. But um, if you, but all of that added to what I eventually was able to do. So don't feel bad about it. Like, yeah. you know, take whatever job and, you know, be looking forward also and see what you want to do, but you're getting experience no matter what you're doing. Right. Teen, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, it's, you don't have to have it all figured out at 18, right? I have so. an 18 year old. He kind of does have it all figured really? out. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. Well, he just always had a, you know, a passion for what he's doing. And so, yeah. Well, and having parents like you and your husband probably doesn't hurt, right? He's probably exposed to much more in, uh, you know, in his life, just two very passionate people who are out there making a difference in, you know, globally. This is huge for, for not just, you know, your community, but globally. So that's amazing. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. I am, gosh, I'm just, I'm cheering for you all the way because I just love what you're doing. And um, I I just want to see you guys succeed so much and best of luck on this, on this um, award that you're, that you're going after. Um, So what advice or what, what do you wish more people knew? Um, What do I wish people knew? Uh, I wish they knew, um, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I wish they really understood the urgency of climate change. I mean, we have less than 10 years to to meet some certain really important milestones. And, um, I mean, I have stuff sitting on my desk that's probably 10 years old. It's not that time to get to make some really big changes and uh so i um i really hope that people start taking it seriously start giving it a priority um and when i say people i think individuals are thinking that but the ones that really need to do it are the corporations and the countries right 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 individually yeah and we have to push them they work for us right well, and we, and we, we pay with our, uh, you know, we, we elect who we're going to have with our money. Right. So if you want a corporation to do what you would want them to do, stop buying their products until they figure it out. Right. And so it, if, it's you're not- a share, if you're a shareholder, speak up. And that's what's happening with a lot of the big companies. Shareholders are taking a very strong stand and they're yeah. not going to put up with this shit anymore. They're like, Good. you need to cut back on your emissions. Yes. You need to do something about that. It's a business expense. I think what what businesses don't consider is, and I'm talking about big business doesn't consider is they're like, well, that doesn't, you know, that cuts into our profit too much or uh-huh. whatever. And you know what? Cleaning up your carbon dioxide mess is part of your business expense. That's the way I see it. So you're going to have to cut into your profits a little bit. You know, yeah. that's that's just, you know, doing business. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they need to help, you know, be held to it and be fined if they're not. And that's the other thing is that we're not holding them accountable enough. So yeah, lots to do in business. 
Well, thank you so much, Beth McDaniel. You are just such an inspiration and I've really learned so much and I am rooting for you and, and really hoping that you, you make the impact that I know that you can make. So we just need to get behind you and uh, make sure that you have all the resources that you need. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really enjoy myself. Thanks for great questions too. Thank you. So how can people find you? Um, well, we are Team Lichen in the X Prize. If you're looking for us, okay. And uh, L I C H E N Team Lichen, and um, our company is Reactive Surfaces. That's like surface of the table, not services. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you can look, and you can see all of our technologies. Um, our we call them platform technologies in there, including carbon capture coatings. Okay. And then um, right. I'll give you my link. All right. I appreciate it. And you can also find Beth McDaniel on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. We will make sure to have her full bio and all of her links on there as well. So thank you so much for joining me for another episode today. I hope you learned a lot as I have. And Beth, again, thank you so much for all of your time and your expertise today. I've really enjoyed it. So I hope everyone has the most amazing day ever. Thank you for joining our guests on the Pretty Powerful Podcast. And we hope you've gained new insight and learned from exceptional women. Remember to subscribe or check out this and all episodes on prettypowerfulpodcast.com. Visit us next time. And until then, step into your own power.